too. So thank you for having me here this morning. So I know it's Father's Day, so I want to say happy Father's Day to all you fathers that are here and uh, those that can't be here but are able to watch us. Uh, it's a beautiful day, so hopefully you have some wonderful plans to celebrate your fathers here uh, uh, on this wonderful Sunday. Um, thank you for the welcome. Uh, I, I am a chaplain in the CMA. I was uh, born in the CMA. I uh, go back a few generations in the CMA. My grandparents were part of it, so were my parents, and born into the CMA. And actually, the pastor who did my dedication as a baby was the same one who did the wedding for me and my wife. So it's just kind of CMA roots uh, throughout. So uh, I'm happy to be here. And and uh, as, a, as a chaplain in a hospital, um, I don't always have a chance to be able to preach on Sunday mornings and have a church of my own because being a full-time hospital chaplain, that takes up a lot of your time. And so I told Thomas, uh, uh, Thomas George, our district superintendent, I said, I'm happy to fill in whenever you need me and any of our churches uh, uh, in the district need that. And so he's put me on the list. And, and so when you guys need... I'm happy to respond. And so I've been able to actually go around to quite a few of the churches in our district and be able to share from God's Word. And uh, some of the things that people may come to know me if I've come to your church more than once is I love the book of Psalms. And there's a few reasons why I preach from the book of Psalms. One is because I absolutely love it. I love reading through the Psalms. There's a reason why the Psalms were meant for worship. And there's a reason why monks of old studied the Psalms and would go through the Psalms each and every day, singing them, praying them, and throughout. There's just so much there. I want to dig right into the Word here. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 38. Now this psalm, Psalm 38, is a penitential psalm, which is a psalm where the writer, a psalm of David at this case, is coming before God and just falling before him, just repenting of the sin that he has. So when it's a penitential psalm, they're repenting for some reason. And so here in Psalm 38, I'll read through the entire passage, and then we'll kind of go through verse by verse, kind of looking deeply into the word here. It starts, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. 
My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So this psalm that we look at, it can be a difficult psalm as you read it because it seems to equate sickness as a punishment from God for sin. And so as a chaplain, I actually come across this quite a bit with people in the hospital. They'll be there sick, possibly dying, maybe a new diagnosis of cancer, and they'll ask me, chaplain, why is God doing this to me? What sin have I done that I now have cancer or that I have this happening? And so it can be difficult because we don't want to see God as a God who's punishing people with sickness because of something that they did wrong. Or God being like, all right, you sinned against me. There's cancer. There's a heart attack. There's diabetes. There's whatever it is. It is hard to see this sometimes. And so a lot of times we might pass over the psalm, especially in the pulpit, because, well, we don't really want to deal with that. We know that Sometimes sickness can be the result of sin, but do we really want to preach that from the pulpit? It could be hard to, to fathom to some people. And other times, sickness may not be the result of sin, so how do we deal with that? So sometimes we just stay away from it. But as I told you, I love the Psalms. So there is very few Psalms that I would really stay away from. I like to go through all of them. And so I want to kind of open our eyes a little bit more to what the psalmist is saying here. And in the psalm here, it can, it can be seen as a way of, um, that we can really look into this problem of sickness and how it could be a way that God gets our attention. And so the psalmist starts out, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. 
So the psalmist here, he's crying out to God as he experiences this suffering from his personal sin. He's crying out to him. He's like, God, oh Lord. It's like, rebuke me. Don't be angry at me. It's like, I know I've done wrong. I know I've done wrong. He's going through this inward turmoil that's happening to him. He's accepted it. He says, okay, God, I know I've sinned. I know these, are, these things are happening to me. I'm accepting it. As, I'm also accepting it as a punishment from you, that you're chastising me here. And the only thing I'm asking God is that in this punishment, maybe you can temper it a little bit with mercy. Give me a little bit of mercy in your punishment that you have for me. And he says that he's sinking arrows into him. At the time of David writing this, the Canaanites had a god called Reshef. And this god Reshef in the Canaanite uh, mythology, he's one who, he was an archer. And his, he would pull back his bow and he would shoot these arrows into the people of earth. And the people who got hit by his arrows would fall to sickness and disease. So David here is kind of using that same imagery. He's saying, God, you're just like this Canaanite God shooting arrows into me with this sickness, sinking them deep within my flesh. He's saying, God, you're you're like this attacking, conquering God trying to get my attention. I have fallen to this sickness. You have my attention, God. I am awake to what you're trying to say to me. He also says, Hear that your hand has come down on me. If any of you uh, have children, or I know all of you were children at one point, so you're probably aware of the parent's strong hand coming down upon the shoulder of a child. And a lot of times, like for myself, when I have my children and we're out in public, And you can't necessarily yell at them with a lot of people around, especially in settings like a church or other things. And so children, my children, I'm sure your children and probably even yourselves when you're younger, are familiar with that heavy hand coming down upon the shoulder. And sometimes it might even have a little bit of a squeeze to it to to show maybe a slightest bit of pain to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Stop it now. My children know this. They understand that when dad's hand comes down upon their shoulder, heavy like that, it's not like a nice soft pat like, hey, you did a good job. It's, stop it right now. They know that, okay, dad has our attention and it's not good. I had better stop what I'm doing or I might get a little more of a squeeze on that shoulder or when we get home, we're going to be in even more trouble. So they understand what that heavy hand is. And I think in a way, David, you know, being a child at one point, having his own kids, he probably has put that heavy hand upon his children or had it put upon him. And he's saying, God, your heavy hand is upon me. I I have your full attention right now. I am ready for you to speak to me. This sickness has gotten my attention. I'm listening. Your hand is upon me. Go ahead. What do you have to say? So he's saying, your heavy hand is upon me. It's kind of that disquieting pressure of God's attention. Sometimes, you know, we really want God's attention. We want to be in his presence fully worshiping him. But when we've done wrong and we have God's attention, that becomes a little more uncomfortable. 
when we realize the sin in our life. It's like, oh, okay, God, I know you're looking right upon me right now. It's a little uncomfortable. I prefer when, I'm, when I feel like I'm clean before you and I'm in that worshipful, worshipful stance, maybe down on my knees, crying out to God of how wonderful you are. But when I've done wrong and I know I need to repent or make things right, that's really hard when, God has your, when you have God's full attention at that point. And so the psalmist here, he's like, okay, God, your hand has come down upon me. There's no soundness in my flesh. Soundness, just word for wholeness. My flesh is not whole. I'm not in good health. You know, I'm, I'm not, not healthy right now. I'm suffering. There's things that are wrong with me. No part of my being right now is not being affected by you. Every part of me, I have no peace at all. This is what David is saying. He's a God, I have no peace because of your indignation. I have no peace because of the sin in my life. There's no health in my bones. Now, I do want to kind of mention here that, yes, we know that sickness may or may not be a result of sin, as we've said. But as a chaplain, when I'm talking to people, I can't say that your sickness is a result of sin, yes or no. I can't tell that to people. And so not being able to give them the answers that they want can be really hard. But one of the things I always tell people is that no matter what's going on with you, that God is with you through it all. This sickness, God is with you through it. But also not only that, but God can use this sickness to open your eyes to him. What is it that God is trying to speak to you? Whether or not this sickness is a result of sin or not, it can still be a way in which God can speak to your heart. And so as a chaplain, a lot of times, that's what I will tell people is that I don't know if your sickness, your disease, this tragic accident that happened, I don't know if it's the result of sin or not. But I can say that God's with you through it. But not only that, God can speak to you through it. And to some level, that can bring some comfort. But we also know that some of our actions can lead to health consequences. So if I come across someone who is maybe has liver failure from a lifetime of drinking, I can say, well, you know that what's happening to you is because of the alcoholism. So you know that it is a consequence of your actions. Or you're in poor health because of the drug abuse or whatever else. Maybe the risky behavior, you're, you go out and you do things, just risky behaviors that you know can have consequences. So sometimes I can't say that, well, you know that what's happening to you is the result of these actions. And sometimes they've repented of them long ago but are still reaping the consequences. Sometimes those can be a little harder conversations to have with people. Other times, just guilt and stress that we have in our life can have real physical dimensions as well. So sometimes maybe the stress that we're putting ourselves under affects our hearts. Really stress or guilt that we have from things that we've done affects our hearts. All these different things. So yes, sometimes sickness may or may not be the result of sin. Other times, Sicknesses, things that happen can be a result of our actions or the guilt or the stress that we have. 
But as David continues here, he talks about this heavy burden. He says that it is a heavy burden, too heavy for him. It's too heavy. So he's saying this heavy burden, it's almost like the psychological component to his sin and guilt. It's this heavy weight upon his shoulder, too heavy for him to lift. And he's calling out to God. He's saying, God, I need you to lift this heavy burden from my shoulders. I cannot, I cannot stand from the weight of it. I am falling over from the weight of this. Many times when we have sin in our life, we tend to let it get out of hand. It might snowball. You might think of you know, the cartoon characters that are sitting there building a snowball and all of a sudden they fall. It starts to roll down a hill. And by the time it gets to the bottom of the hill, you just see their feet and arms sticking out of the snowball. That's that snowball. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger, rolling and rolling, getting bigger. Sometimes we let our sins get out of hand like that and they start to snowball. So maybe something that was small at the beginning, we let build and build until it becomes bigger and becomes a real problem. And it becomes this heavy burden upon us. And it might be something that maybe we hide a sin because we're afraid of the consequences that might happen because if someone found out, and it might have been small at the, point, at the time, but we're hiding it, we're keeping it, so we end up lying about it. We end up making it worse than it would have been. A lot of times when we're in relationships with people, whether it be with our spouse or a friend or even our children or other acquaintances, we might hide something. And all of a sudden, it might have been small at the start, but then it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger till it creates a real wedge in that relationship, that friendship. And that heavy component upon it, it's like a weight upon our shoulders. And sometimes that's how people can fall from ministry. I've known people who have been in ministry positions who it starts small. And it may not have been that big of a deal at the time, but because they hid it, because they didn't want anyone to find out about it, because they didn't want to face the consequences of something small, it became bigger and bigger. It became to fester inside them. Maybe they fell into further sin because of it, because they didn't deal with the initial sin. I've known marriages fall apart because of that. I've known people who maybe it was in business, it might have been something small, and they didn't deal with it, they didn't face the consequences till it turned out to be criminal doings, and they have to face consequences because of that. We tend to sometimes let our sins snowball to become these heavy burdens upon us. And this, is, this is, can be read into the psalm. David, it might have been something small that kind of built up, or it might have been some big action that was heavy upon him. But there is this psychological component of sin and guilt that is here as well. It's just this heavy burden upon him. And as he goes on into the next few verses, he gets very descriptive with this sickness, with these wounds. He says, my wounds stink and fester. Because of my foolishness. If any of you have been around wounds that stink and fester, it is not a good smell at all. It will turn your stomach. Being in the hospital, I've seen that. You'll walk into some hospital rooms where you're just thankful that you're wearing a mask at that, at that point. But even then, it still comes through the mask and you're just, oh, 
do I need to be in this room for a long time or can I get in and out? And sometimes I got to really check myself if I'm doing that. But you realize that wounds that can stink and fester, it can really affect people. A lot of times we see it when you look at nursing homes. Just this, you, you probably, when I say that, probably some of you have a smell that just came to your memory. That smell memory. A lot of times people think of that like, well, I don't want to go to a nursing home because they smell. Because I can smell the sickness. I can smell the death. And so we're kind of turned from it. We're saying, no, I don't want to go there because of the smell. And then we have these people that are neglected from family, from friends, from people to minister to them because of wounds that might stink or fester or from diseases that might cause an aroma in the air. Or maybe we just don't want to deal with the thought of sickness or death. So David here is really getting descriptive. His troubles and sins become like this infection that just... They're inside of him like this infection that just the wound has bursted open and it's oozing and it's festering and it's got this smell. It's always on his mind. If you have a wound like that, you can't not think of it. It's painful. You smell it. You see it. You feel it always. It's always on his mind. He has no relief from it. Nothing is giving him relief from this pain of this, this wound. He's obsessed with it. He can't not think about it. That's what he's saying here. He says, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day. I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. Once again, that wound, it's burning. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. He's talking about being bowed down and prostrate. A lot of times when we see this in Scripture, it's usually someone bowing down, prostrating themselves before God or a king or even angels. They're bowing down in awe. That's not what's happening here. Here David is so crushed by the weight of his sin that he is physically bowed down. He cannot fully stand up. He is just falling down, even laying flat at times because of the burden that this sin has upon him. These physical ailments are brought on by his spiritual pain. He knows that something needs to change. He cannot go on like this. He's saying, God, all these things are happening. These wounds, they're affecting me. This sin is heavy upon me. I am completely fallen over here. I cannot even stand up fully. I know that something needs to change in my life. He becomes completely inward focused on his troubles. He's feeble. He's crushed. He's groaning because of his troubles. He's not focused on what he should be at this time in his life. Because of the sin in his life, because of the sickness that he has, he can only focus on himself. Sometimes that happens to us because of the troubles that we have, because of the sin in our life, we can't focus on the things that God wants us to focus on. We don't always focus on other people or bringing the gospel to them or bringing God's love to them so that they can see 
God's image within us. We tend to focus on ourselves when we have sin in our life. When we have these different things that weigh us down, we can't be who we are meant to be in God's sight because we have to turn our focus inward because of the sin that is happening. David says that all my longing is before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. He's saying, God, I am an open book before you. Everything about me, I'm opening up before you. It's laid out before you now. See, God knows us completely. There is nothing that we can keep hidden from Him. So sometimes these sins that we try to hide from other people, sometimes we think we can even hide them from God, but we know, we know we can't. God knows us completely. And so David here, he's, he's not fooling himself anymore. He's saying, God, you know me completely. I am laying everything out before you. All of who we are lies open before God. And he's saying, my sighing is not hidden from you. At this point, David, he can't even speak. All he can do is just say, oh, oh. A lot of times in the hospital, I come across patients. That's all they can do is just groan. They can just groan. They can't even speak. And a lot of times, I just hope and pray that maybe this is them calling out to God. I'll hold their hands. I'll pray with them. I'll sigh right along with them. God knows the meaning of our sighs. So we may not be able to express ourselves fully when we have this weight of sin crushing upon us. But God knows. He knows whatever we can do to express ourselves. He knows. He can interpret it. Everything is failing David here. He is in the dark and completely alone. And as he continues with this sin that he's talking about, with this disease, this infection that he has, he says, my friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. And then he even talks about how his enemies have tried to snare him even as well. That they're trying to take advantage of him during this time. He is down and he is out. His friends have left him and his enemies see an opportunity to attack. Saying, even my friends shun me. Maybe it's the sickness. They don't want to be around it. The smell of that wound. Who knows? But it might also be just the anguish that he's going through. He has cut people off as well. We don't know for sure. Sometimes we look at passages like that and we can see that things like the more a person who needs human support, the more a person needs support from other people, the less they attract it. The more support that people need from each other, a lot of times the less they attract it. And we can see, for example, the homeless. We see them out on street corners holding signs. And we see them, they're dirty, they might smell, and we might just try to walk a little further away because we don't want to make eye contact. Or maybe we're sitting in our cars as they're there, we're like, I'm looking at everything but them. 
Or maybe we have in our mind, well, they're only doing that to scam us. They don't really need the money. Look how much money they can get from people. But that is not our place to judge. The homeless, a lot of times when we look at them, we see that they need support. But because of maybe the smell, how they look or whatever, it may not attract support from other people. We should hone in on those things. The mentally ill a lot of times. As a chaplain, I work a lot with people on mental health units. That is a large part of what I do. And a lot of times, they are so neglected by other people in the population. They don't get the support they need from government institutions, but not only that, from their own family members. A lot of times, because of their mental illness, they're neglected from their, even their own families. They've turned their backs on them. These are the people who need support the most. And a lot of times, they're the people who do not attract the most support. Single mothers, people that are out there struggling. People look at single mothers and say, well, why can't they get a job? Why, should they, why are they on welfare? Why are they doing this? And they judge because of all these preconceived notions. Raising children on your own is hard. I've got two kids. That's not a big family to some people's standards. I have siblings who've got six kids, and I don't know if they're done. And I just think they're crazy. But having two kids with two parents in the home is hard enough. I'm sure all of you who are parents or are still parents know how difficult it is to raise kids. Imagine doing it alone. Sometimes the problem child or the problem teen, a lot of times that's when they become real problems to us is when they hit those teenage years and we're like, oh, I've got to deal with it again. Maybe you've seen some. These are the people who need some of the most support and they tend to attract it the least. Maybe someone who's divorced, who just really needs a friend, companionship. Maybe the elderly, who don't have people coming around as often. Those that they grew up with, their friends, their companions continually die and they have less and less support. I mentioned nursing homes. Those that are in nursing homes get neglected quite often and they attract less and less support. David talks about how his companions and his friends shun him. But we need to make sure that we are looking at the people that are being shunned in our society. Those are the people that Jesus would have beelined right towards. We see that in Scripture. And he was judged for it. I challenge you to let other people judge you for doing the same thing. Beeline yourself towards the mentally ill, towards the homeless, towards those that need support the most. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be like, oh, they're judging me because I help the homeless. Or they're judging me because I spend all my time with those that are mentally ill. Or I spend so much of my time helping problem teens, whatever it might be. I was reading an article not too long ago. This woman was talking about how she was turned off towards the church. 
And it came about because of, it was someone that had come to, I don't know if it was her school or her church or something, and she was talking about how she had had an abortion. And that she had had an abortion and she repented and said to God, I've done wrong and please forgive me of my sin. And the church was like, oh, she's repented of this thing that she has done, so we're welcoming her with open arms, which that part is great. But that's not who the woman who was writing this article was. She was someone who became pregnant as a teenager. Heard them accepting this person who committed an abortion and was asking for forgiveness for it. And they welcomed her with open arms. But this person who got pregnant, she was shunned and shamed in the church. And she decided to keep the baby because she had sex as a teenager and was not marrying the person, but decided to go ahead and have this baby. And because of their views of sexuality and sex, they were like, okay, this is wrong. We need to make an example. Shun them because we don't want our other children doing this. So she felt this shame put upon her. She was shamed. She was kind of turned out. They wanted, while she was pregnant, to kind of hide her so no one could see her. So that they wouldn't have these same thoughts that somehow... Seeing that, they would be like, okay, I'm going to go do the same thing. So they shamed her instead. It was a horrible example as I was reading this article because it was someone who was forever turned off from the church because of the, the, because of the thing that had happened to her. I myself had something similar in the school that I went to. A girl became pregnant. The school's way of handling it was they kicked her out while she was pregnant. Once the baby was born and everything else, they could bring her back so that no one could see her pregnant. They tried to pretend like it didn't happen. But for some reason, the guy who was involved with it, he was able to stay in the school. So I don't understand that. I went to a Christian school, by the way. That probably was an important part there. So we see how we can shame people because of things in their life and how we can wound people because of that. As David continues on here, he says, I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. He's talking here. He's become like someone who is deaf and mute. No sound. He is completely quiet. He's unable to speak in his plight. He's not even able to complain anymore. Not even able to answer his enemies with a defense. He's becoming even more and more isolated. And his response to all this isolation, to this pain that he's under, to this heavy weight upon him, to his friends leaving him, to his enemies honing in on him. His response is, I'll wait on the Lord. David is still faithful here. He still has faith. He knows God will answer. Why does he know God will answer? Well, he has experience with this God. We have experience with this God. He is the God of our past experiences. We know God answers because He's answered us before. He has walked beside us through our troubles. 
We know he will answer. David knows that God will answer. No one else will come to his aid at this time but God alone. So all of this is happening to him. He is all the way to this breaking point in his life. And finally, we come to the turning point. He has called upon God. He is waiting upon God. And then he says, For I am ready to fall. I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. All of this is happening to him. He's saying, God, please give me mercy. Like, take away some of this pain that I'm going through. Everyone has left me. They've isolated me. My enemies are coming in upon me. God, help me, help me, help me. And then finally, he's like, okay, God, I get it. You've been trying to tell me this whole time. I finally get it. I'm ready to fall down before you now. And he falls down before God. And he says, I confess my sin. I am sorry for my sin. He finally confesses before God. And he says, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So, he says, I am ready to fall. He confesses his sin, and he's calling out to God not to forsake him, but to come to him, because he knows that God is not far from him. Now, I first came across this psalm, At least it first hit me really hard for the first time a number of years ago when I was at a district conference with the CMA. And it was just some of my personal readings as I love to read through the psalm. And I read that verse, for I am ready to fall. And for some reason, it just hit me like a brick wall. Like I just ran right into it. And I had to grapple with it. And over the few days of the conference, I just studied this psalm. I studied that phrase, for I am ready to fall. And I want to read to you some of my journaling that I wrote as I was going through that struggle of reading the psalm, studying it. And so I would read a little bit of the psalm. I would look into a commentary maybe, take a few notes, write a little bit of a journal, and I would come back to it later. And I just kind of went through it for a few days here, here and there. And so I just want to read to you some of the things that I wrote. Many know the importance of repentance and forgiveness. It is a rote thing for many, but the circumstances of our lives and the conditions of our hearts need to be where the psalmist is here. I am ready to fall. It is at this point when our sorrows are real. It is at this point where our confession is truly meant. It is at this point where we really meet God, who is not far from us. The psalmist was continually brought low throughout this psalm. But he was not yet ready. Eventually, his heart was ready, ready to fall. This is when change will happen, when we will meet God. Another aspect of being ready to fall is knowing you will be caught. 
It is not some cozy trust exercise, but really knowing who our God is. It takes a lot to be able to fall, to come to the point of real repentance and being met with true forgiveness. It requires trust that God will meet us there as we fall in his presence. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. He longs for us to fall. He longs for us to come to this level of dependence. It seems that sometimes in life, everything that holds us up needs to crumble in order to come to that realization and knowing God by name, knowing the God of covenant, knowing God as Savior and Master. This fall is not like the psalmist earlier in the passage where he is bowed down and prostrate. That was from physical ailments. Later he falls because of being spiritually ready. We need to make the transition from a physical bend of the knee to the inward laying low before God. All my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. The omniscient God causing us to be fallen in our worship. This is the fall we need, being an open book. The psalmist's sins have become such a burden that he sees all that has happened to him as a result of it. Whether it is a direct consequence of sin or God's punishment, For the sin. He speaks of it like a wound that is now infected. It stinks and is festering. His every thought is on it, and he has no relief. Yet he is not ready to fall. This shows our stubbornness. Everything is against us, and everyone has distanced themselves from us, yet we do not fall before God in confession and reconciliation to him. It took this almost obsession with the effects of the sin, to drive him to repentance. This shows also how God will not give up on us, but is the hound of heaven, sharp on our heels, waiting for the moment when we truly fall before him. But the psalm ends unresolved. There is no picture of God crushing or crashing through and delivering. No defeat of his enemies, no healing from his ailment. He is left waiting. For the practiced Christian, this is hard to swallow. We get caught up in a rote spirituality where certain formulaic things will get certain results. If we fall before God and confess our sin, we'll have a rush of emotion and feeling of God's presence. There will be forgiveness. And he will say, welcome my child. Or we know to go to a worship service where we know we will meet God and be flooded with his presence. But this does not happen in the psalm. The psalmist falls before God and it ends with him still waiting. He cries out to God not to forsake him and also to make haste in his response. God is still silent at the end of the psalm. How do we navigate the deserts when we don't hear or feel God? Is the faith just as real? 
is someone who gets caught up in, a, in a, an emotional response, more in tune with God, or the person treading through the spiritual desert, but yet remains faithful. The lingering cry for help. The psalmist is crying out from darkness and pain in life with everything and everyone against him. Yet he waits on God, waiting for him to answer. This shows a rich faith as it does not require an answer from God, but yet he still believes. At this time in my life, I can relate as I feel all the emotional and spiritual pain, yet I know God and I wait for the answer. Even though I feel like the deaf man in verse 13, I will believe even without an answer. My cry for help will continue to go forth to my God who is not far from me. That, I wrote that in a time of my life where I was in a lot of pain, spiritual pain, and it was because of sin in my life. I almost destroyed my marriage. It was financial things where I didn't tell my wife how we were doing financially. I kept wasting money where I shouldn't have. And she thought we were doing okay, but I told her, no, like, you know, if things are fine, we're good, even though things were getting worse and worse. And I didn't manage our money properly. And we ended up with a lot of debt. She was ready to leave me. Thankfully, she didn't. We worked through a lot of the issues that we have. And at the time when I was reading this psalm, was right in the thick of it. I started going to Debtors Anonymous meetings, getting the help that I need. I started to pull myself out with the help of good people in my life. And God has really blessed us since. We are on a lot stronger footing than we were. Our marriage took a hit, but we're stronger now. And you know, I was going through a difficult time in my life, crying out to God. And at the time, I didn't have an answer, but I stuck with God. I knew he would help us through it. I let that sin in my life snowball. I wasn't up front with her from the beginning. And it became worse and worse. It became to such a point where I was obsessed with the sin in my life. How it was such a heavy burden upon me. Finally, everything broke loose. And I had to confess. My car broke down. We had to replace it. And she's like, well, just get money from savings. We'll get a new car. Oh, savings isn't there. That was hard. But finally, was able to work through it. God was able to shine his light upon the sin in my life. We were able to work through the healing that came afterward. But I felt like David here in this psalm at that time in my life. It was heavy upon me. That wound I could smell every time I thought about it. I was obsessed with the sin. I couldn't get it out of my mind. It was weighing upon me. Finally, God gave me release from that. We have a God who is there. As David says, my God, be not far from me. He knows God is close to be able to answer. God is there for each and every one of you. 
the troubles that you are going through in your life may be weighing down upon you like a heavy weight. But God will answer. Let us pray. God, I thank you for your word here. We go through so many troubles in our life. Sometimes you're just trying to shake us awake, God. Get our attention. God, I pray that we don't have to be completely broken down before we realize that you are calling our name, trying to get a hold of us. I pray that you will save us from some pain and suffering, that we won't be so stubborn before we answer. God, I pray that you will get a hold of each and every one of us here. That you will walk with us through the pain that we are in. That you will deliver us and help us through. We turn to you, God, and we call upon your holy name. Amen.